Hey folks, Scott Weinger here, and this is an MCRIT We. Yesterday, I put out an episode with my buddy Sam Galley on when to use APRV, and we got two great comments almost immediately from uh, really fantastic folks in the ED critical care community. So I wanted to go through um, their two comments here on a quick MCRIT Week because I think there's some really interesting stuff to discuss. First one's from my buddy Joe Scheiber. Uh, Joe is a intensivist and the head of the ECMO program down at one of the hospitals in Florida. And he'll be on the show very shortly. Uh, we already recorded the episode. But I'll, I guess I'll read uh, Joe's comments and then uh, intersperse my own feelings on it. All right. Over the last five years, every consult I've had for VV ECMO due to ARDS has been on the ARDSnet regimen, most paralyzed, deeply sedated, and requiring pressors. We have used APRV to avoid ECMO in almost all cases when not already dying or in extremis from hypoxemia, i.e. PO2 in the 30s. So we have only cannulated one out of every five consults and have an 80% survival rate. This data includes COVID-19 as well as trauma patients whose family withdrew care due to severe TBI despite excellent lung recovery, thereby indicating that the survival rate might even be better than seen in that statistic. Is I'm interspersing my own comment there. Our actual quote-unquote failure rate of APRV, meaning it was applied when already meeting the criteria for severe ARDS and now ECMO, so they met ECMO criteria, but not actively dying, meaning they had 12 to 24 hours to attempt rescue with APRV instead of cannulating for ECMO is only 10%. So just translating that, 90% of the patients who met the criteria for ECMO, VV ECMO, uh, could be rescued with APRV. So if we are given a chance to use APRV, and what comes with it is less sedation, since more comfortable, and supported spontaneous breathing, no paralytics, improved cardiovascular performance, so less pressors, and better secretion clearance, then we are able to avoid ECMO. All right. So, uh, and you'll, you'll find the, the trend during uh, my comments on Joe's comments is I don't disagree in my heart with anything Joe is saying. Um, I, I am biased strongly to agree with him, but uh, what I've really girded myself against is letting my own internal bias guide uh, statements about the truth of things in the world until I actually have studies to support them. And now, this is it's it, an interesting set of comments, because first of all, you'll remember the uh, FLOR-ALI trial, the FLORALI trial, I can't ever pronounce that one very well, it was a trial of VV ECMO where they sent patients from outside centers meeting criteria for VV ECMO to the ECMO cannulation center, and what was found there is that most of the time they were able with conventional ventilation, not APRV as far as I'm aware, with conventional ventilatory modes, uh, avoid cannulating a ton of those patients. So uh, does that mean APRV is necessarily better? Uh, no, it doesn't. Does it mean APRV could still be better? Absolutely, it does. It just needs to be studied. And, you know, Nader Habashi discovered the same thing. He was brought to shock trauma to start their ECMO program for VV ECMO. And all of the referrals he got, I'd say, if I remember his statements correctly, like one out of 20 or something less than that, something like infinitesimally small uh, patients who met the criteria uh, would actually need to be cannulated because he was able using APRV um, to actually get these patients uh, to a better state and not needing VV ECMO. So again, I don't disagree with you, but... It also is not data. It's not proof. It's anecdote. Now, if you compare it head to head, um, APRV to a more intensive strategy of conventional mode ventilation, I'm not sure what difference you would see. Now, I'm not saying you wouldn't, but do this mental experiment with me. You're the ECMO guy down at your hospital. Let's say you put in a uh, 
extracorporeal CO2 clearance catheter. You know, much lower complication rate than the big ones we need for VA ECMO or for VV ECMO where they have issues of hypoxemia. You know, let's say you put in a, a dialysis catheters, and you're good, Joe. I know you're not going to cause mechanical complications. So now you have a setup for CO2 scrubbing. You could dial in the CO2 to whatever you want. Do you honestly believe APRV, and let's, let's put aside uh, Nader's new uh, potential for rapid frequency release TCAV actually having recruitment benefits. I don't even know if you're doing that yet, but let's put that aside for a second. That's interesting. We don't have any data on that, but let's put that aside. Do you think those patients would do better or worse than your APRV strategy? My guess is they do the same or better. If you were using CPAP at the same level of mean airway pressure that you had your patients on for your APRV, let's say you started them on the APRV to find your mean airway pressure, your P high, and then you converted them to CPAP and started up the CO2 scrubbing. Do you really feel that APRV would have an advantage? I'm curious to hear what you think. And again, I don't disagree with anything you say, and I use APRV on every single one of the patients you describe. And I've had the same, the exact same experience of being able to take patients that I got called for VV ECMO or got called because of intractable hypoxemia that when they were switched to a proper setting on TCAV or APRV uh, was... was pretty much looking a thousand times better the next day. Um, we've all had these, if you have any experience using these ventilatory modes. But what we don't know is when you divert from ARDSnet with conventional ventilation and go in a different direction, whether those same differences wouldn't be seen. By which I mean, when you exceed what most people will call their cutoff, you know, like, oh my God, they're on 20, I can't go any higher. And you go to whatever peep they need, perhaps driven by uh, driving pressure, perhaps driven by just a estimation that they're not, the alveoli are not actually seeing those high pressures. And you stick with low tidal volumes, uh, you know, will APRV have an additional rescue potential that's great as what you've seen? Um, my guess is probably not. All right, second paragraph of Joe's comment. If I could use it when already critical ARDS to rescue these patients, then it should be used to avoid the need to rescue them by applying it early on everyone. Well, this is a logical fallacy. This is not true um, by what you've presented. And it, you know, it, um, again, in my heart, I, I feel it probably could be true. It's just, we have no evidence to support that. Now, let me give you a, a counter example that I think will prove my point. Let's pretend uh, high frequency oscillatory ventilation actually worked and, and got patient important benefit. And, and my contention is why it didn't is uh, the need for paralysis or, or incredibly deep sedation to avoid spontaneous breathing. Uh, well, not to avoid, but in a way that avoids spontaneous breathing um, is the main reason that that fails. Because when you think about it, um, it it's essentially the same concept as APRV. It's establishing a CPAP and then finding a different, safer way to get the ventilatory component. So let's pretend high fav actually worked. Well, we'd certainly consider that as a rescue mode but we wouldn't in any way consider that as a early application to everyone mode, um, which means, you know, APRV certainly because it doesn't need the paralysis and is incredibly comfortable and has a lot of putative benefits. It, it doesn't fall into that same category of where we couldn't use it on everyone, but the logic doesn't extend that just because it's a rescue mode that works means we should apply it to everyone early on. All right. Yes, it takes more effort to take uh, care of patients using APRV, but when is that an excuse not to use better therapy? Yeah, we just got to prove it's better. 
Um, we spend time evaluating volume status and dynamic response to volume challenge. Why? Well, I don't, but I understand where you're going. We don't just keep giving IV fluid boluses for shock. Yes, I trained under Nader too, but I've been using APRV for 20 years and understand why it would be personally unethical to conduct an RCT of APRV using a control group of the ArtsNet regimen. Okay. Well, no, I can't. This is the only comment I really disagree with vociferously. And, you know, I thought the same early on in my career that, you know, how could people study things that just so on their face are obviously better? It's, it's unethical. It's unethical. No, it turns out the ethics are actually the opposite. And you, when we talk about equipoise, it's equipoise at a standards of care level, not at the individual researcher level. It's because they're, you know, every individual researcher worth their salt should truly believe in the therapy they're exposing their patients to. And some of them believe it really strongly, but it's ethically wrong for them to keep performing those therapies when there is now an opportunity to study them, both for the individual patient. There's some situations where the face evidence to the researcher seems so obvious that it would be unethical to study in an RCT fashion, i.e. Paul Marek's metabolic cocktail, right? Can't think of a better example of the folly that this kind of logic leads to. Um, but even if the uh, researcher feels that it is an absolutely uh, indisputable fact that this therapy is superior, uh, the ethics extend to society at large. And no one's going to start doing that therapy. They don't have the same fervent belief the researcher does. And therefore, even though in your individual practice, uh, you might be for a very brief period of time exposing patients to a less than optimal therapy, and you could build in safety checks to see that if it's so overwhelmingly true, what you thought it was true, that you could stop the study early. Um, but the ethics of society at large really would force you that if you truly believe in a therapy to study it, that it is not unethical uh, to study it. It's actually unethical not to study it. So hopefully uh, that's a different counterpoint to what you were going with, Joe. And I'd be super curious to hear your thoughts. All right, now let's get to Rory's comments. Rory is a intensivist in emerging from the ED, but I don't know how much ED time he actually does anymore um, at the Washington Hospital Center. And he is the author of the MCRIT team blog, EM Nerd or CC Nerd, depending on which hat he is wearing. And he is quickly emerged as one of the best teachers of APRV out there. Uh, he is capable of uh, translating the complex and oftentimes mysterious um, ideas of APRV into a understandable form. So he has a six-part comment here that you could read in the show notes for this episode. I'm not going to go through the first two. I'm going to skip on to number three. Can you just put them on CPAP? I would say if you could simply put the patient on CPAP, then they do not require APRV. Most of our patients were breathing comfortably with normal respiratory mechanics just a few days prior to presentation. Whatever respiratory insult that caused this presentation was simply due to worsening compliance of the lung parenchyma, resulting in reduced resting lung volumes below the FRC, the functional residual capacity. The patient's respiratory muscles are working just as well as they did previously, only now they have to work harder to manage the same volume of CO2 production. If one could restore the patient back to their previous lung volumes with the use of PEEP, then potentially the patient could more comfortably breathe on their own. The classic example of this is a patient presenting to the ED with acute pulmonary edema due to congestive heart failure. These patients typically have relatively normal respiratory muscles and have respiratory distress due to the increased extravascular lung water leading to a heavy lung resulting in reduced lung volumes. The use of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation is so effective in this patient population because it allows for the clinician to reestablish normal lung volumes using a non-invasive form of PEEP. 
Rapid restoration of normal lung volumes is readily attainable due to relatively swift recruitability of patients with cardiogenic pulmonary edema. This is why most of these patients are managed non-invasively, not requiring invasive mechanical ventilation. Unfortunately, most forms of respiratory distress are due to underlying disease processes that are not as easily recruitable as cardiogenic pulmonary edema. And while the application of PEEP will often restore normal lung volumes, it does so in a slow fashion. Given the reluctant nature of lung recruitment of an injured lung, it is not feasible or safe to expect a patient to manage their own ventilation. During this period of recruitment, until the patient can safely manage their own ventilatory needs with spontaneous breathing, APRV uses release volumes to manage the patient's CO2. As the patient recruits and lung volumes get closer to FRC, it is safe to allow them to breathe, and you can now stretch the APRV to CPAP. Yeah, agree with every bit of that. And I want to make a point here, uh, just in case it wasn't obvious from the episode, and I'm not sure Rory didn't take my point, but just to make sure you as the audience do, I'm not advocating you put patients on CPAP that you would be using APRV on normally. What I'm saying is that APRV's differences from CPAP are ventilatory, just as Rory alludes to, and that if you had the same degree of lung recruitment for whatever you set your CPAP to, and we're managing the patient's ventilatory needs, and again, I'll I'll harken back to the uh, hypothetical example I gave during Joe's talk, if you were scrubbing their CO2 uh, extracorporeally, I'm not saying you should be doing this, uh, the studies haven't borne it out yet, but if you were doing that, um, and you set the CPAP at the same level as your P high, my guess is you would have the exact same effects, uh, potentially even salutary effects. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. And again, the, the Nader idea of the uh, releases actually benefiting recruitment are interesting here and may you know, cast uh, doubt on what I am saying, but that, those are, remain to be proven. But I'm talking philosophically. When I think about APRV, when I speak about high-frequency oscillatory ventilation, when I talk about ArtsNet management, what you should be understanding is that the lung recruitment, the hypoxemia effects are coming from what you set the patient's baseline to, what you set their PEEP to or their CPAP to. And then the rest is just frills added on for ventilatory benefit. And if you start conceptualizing ventilator management that way, all of a sudden you gain a real understanding of what we're actually trying to do. And you know the benefits of APRV is the long time spent at high mean airway pressures that still allow the patients to spontaneously breathe. And when the ventilations are needed, uh, forced upon the patient, they are done below that mean airway pressure, not above it. So I completely agree with Rory's comments, but I I just want to make sure that they are not uh, guided at me advocating that you should take every patient that would be appropriate for APRV and just put them on CPAP, because I I totally agree with him. Is 70% of APRV just picking the correct PEEP? Maybe, though I would say, how do you decide what the correct PEEP is? The lung is a viscoelastic organ, thus changing over time. The ideal PEEP at any given moment does not necessarily represent the ideal PEEP to reestablish FRC. When using APRV, you don't actually set a PEEP. You set the pressure you think will get you to the FRC. The PEEP, the trapping pressure in the case of APRV, will increase naturally over time. Okay, let me pause there and, and say we're thinking about it differently. Um, you're thinking about the PEEP very appropriately and very accurately as what is left at the very end of the TLO. That's not how I think about PEEP when I'm talking about this philosophically. For me, the PEEP, or maybe CPAP would be a more accurate term, is where the APRV would be if you fully stretched them out, which is the P high. And that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying setting the CPAP to the same 
settings as APRV is whatever you deem the correct P high at the time, if you set them to CPAP and dealt with their ventilatory issues, whether the patient's doing it themselves or you're doing it for them in some other means that is that, and the means are safe, that's where I don't think you're going to see much difference between APRV and that other situation. It doesn't mean that's going to exist in real life. I think APRV is the best way to get there if there are ventilatory needs that the patient can't get to themselves. But when I'm saying setting a CPAP, I'm talking about the same CPAP as your P-high at any given moment that you would have them on at APRV. And it might very well be the case that if what I'm crazily proposing as a hypothetical episode actually came to fruition, like the... Uh, extracorporeal CO2 scrubbing actually became good enough that we could really say this is the way to go rather than um, putting the patient on the ventilator for ventilatory needs um, and sticking purely for hypoxemia needs. It might very well be that you actually picked your CPAP settings by briefly putting the patient on APRV and seeing uh, all the myriad measurements that come along with doing that. Um, but I think you get there with CPAP alone. But what I'm saying is a conversion of APRV's P-high to CPAP at any given moment in time. All right, he goes on to say, you never actually reach your P-high. In my opinion, this means you do not have to be exact in the P-high that you select. A range of pressures will have the same effect on the patient's recruitment as long as you have properly set your T-low. This is not the case in traditional modes of ventilation where you are trying to identify an exact PEEP which will get you to FRC using tools that are incapable of predicting the recruitability of the lung. In addition, APRV offers a number of tools to assess whether you're getting closer to FRC, and if you're not, to allow you to correct your course. Yep, this is what I was mentioning by maybe APRV is the measurement rather than the actual mode once ventilation disappears. Standard modes of ventilation, for the most part, do not. Every PEEP titration strategy I'm aware of uses instantaneous PEEP titration scales, which tell you very little about the true recruitability of the lung or what is the ideal PEEP to get you to FRC. Completely agree. I would add, you mentioned the traditional drop and stretch method of weaning APRV. Well, I'll just put Sam under the bus. Sam mentioned that um, because I, I agree with what Roy's going to say next. Uh, or decreasing the P-high dropping and increasing the T-high stretching in tandem. That's what the drop and stretch is. I would say many of us no longer marry these maneuvers. Rather, the T-high is increased as the patient's minute ventilation needs allow it. And the P-high should be decreased as the pressure dependence improves. In my experience, the latter occurs in a much delayed fashion. For the most part, I have to stretch a patient quite extensively before I start to drop their P-high, which typically only occurs after I've woken the patient up, diuresed them extensively, and allowed the initial pulmonary insult to run its course. Yep, couldn't agree more. All right. He goes on to talk about APRV versus bilevel, uh, agreeing with most of what I said. He adds that, uh, and this has not been the ventilators I've been ex uh, experienced with, so it's a fantastic addition. Many ventilators allow the patient to kick out the TO, and you end up with much larger release volumes than you would like. In cases like this, it becomes nearly impossible to stabilize the lung. Yeah, that seems like a truly stupid way to bill uh, APRV-capable ventilators. So uh, if you're doing that, never put a patient on APRV on those kind of vents. Rory, if you're listening to this, uh, which ventilators do you find do that? All right. Finally, who should you use APRV on? Everyone and no one. What I mean is, in the ICU, I pretty much use APRV or CPAP on most of the patients I manage. The exception of this is asthmatic patients for whom I do not see the point. And I'll just throw in my own uh, two cents here. Yes, uh, you absolutely can do this on obstructive lungs, but it only becomes to prove a point that APRV is universal. There's absolutely no reason to do it on those patients. It just becomes a silly exercise, in my opinion. They're going to break, and once they do, they come off the vent fairly easily. This is Rory again. Uh, it is possible to manage them on IPRV, but it is difficult, and the consequences of doing it wrong are dire. Outside of asthmatics, I pretty much use APRV or CPAP on everyone. What determines whether I use APRV or CPAP is whether the patient is close to FRC or not. Conversely, in the ED, I rarely put anyone on APRV. APRV is a long-term 
vent mode. Its major advantages are primarily how it allows you to progress your patients through their disease course most, most rapidly. If it is not going to be carried on upstairs, I'm not sure what benefits it has in the short term. In addition, as you mentioned, it is fairly complex and requires a great deal of attention. If the patient does not have a primary lung pathology that would benefit from APRV, using APRV during active resuscitations could distract you from the more important parts of the resuscitation. Pretty much the only patients for whom I utilize APRV in the ED are those with refractory hypoxemia with double lung pathology. Uh, well, those are exactly the patients I use APRV in the ED for as well. But the only difference I think, Rory, between what you're saying and where I go is the refractory hypoxemia is in quotes in my world because most of the time refractory hypoxemia in the ED that wasn't refractory before an intubation is due to derecruitment. And sure, you could use a conventional recruitment maneuver. I find those to be dangerous and I don't want to expose my learners to the idea of doing that because if they're not really as experienced as they need to be, they could actually kill patients. I find short-term APRV especially with the new uh, Nader-endorsed rapid-release TCAV protocol, rapid-frequency-of-release TCAV protocol, is an amazing short-term recruitment maneuver. And even an hour will see an amazing benefit to the patient's uh, hypoxemia and may avoid things like the ECMO consults that Joe talked about, even if they're going to go on a conventional mode soon after in the ICU. Um, so certainly it's not a mode of minutes, but it is a mode of hour or a couple of hours. And this I found this not infrequently, that patients who on ARDSnet are still satting, you know, in the high 70s, if you you put them on a brief trial of, of APRV, you can absolutely safely recruit these patients and bring them to a state where they then are very safe and on markedly lower uh, PEEP settings than they were on the P high of the APRV and go upstairs and stay on a conventional mode their whole hospital course. And I'm curious if you have tried it in those particular patients and then transitioned off. Because my guess is for you, the patients that I am talking about will stay on APRV their whole course because that's the uh, nature of your particular center is the capability of providing long-term APRV. But just as for funsies, I think if you tried it, well, God, I shouldn't have stated it that way because people are going to be pissed. I'm not talking about funsies um, at the expense of your patient. I'm not minimizing uh, how important this stuff is. I'm just saying uh, as an exercise, um, I think you would find in the patients that you would maintain on APRV if you did have a period of brief recruitment on APRV, let's say two or three hours, and then convert, convert them off, I think you'd find they do very well. And uh, let's be really clear here. I'm not talking about the patient that was pre-intubation, 70% um, on non-invasive and uh, inhaled vasodilators. And those patients probably have really refractory double lung pathology. What I am talking about, and we see this, uh, you, you've seen it. I've seen it with you when you were my fellow. Patients who were satting, 85% on non-invasive, got intubated, then are satting in the 70s. Um, that's pretty obvious that what has happened is a mass derecruitment. And sure, they might get re-recruited on the conventional lung modes, um, but they do it better on APRV. So I'm curious to hear what you think about that. All right, folks, this, this ran way longer than the original episode, and I'm sorry for that. And this will be of interest to a small subset of the population of the MCRIT listeners. But for those who are interested in it, I think it'll be really interesting. So I'm curious to hear what you think. Put it in the comments. Scott Weingart from the MCRIT We saying bye-bye. <laughs>